Greetings, everyone. Firstborn from the dead is how Jesus Christ is referred to in Revelation 1, verse 5, and in Colossians 1 and verse 18. That is, in the New, New King James Version, other translations may have a slightly different wording, but uh, with essentially the same meaning. In today's sermon, I want to discuss the implications of the title, Firstborn from the Dead, as it applies to Jesus Christ. Is this term to be understood only as a title denoting preeminence, as some have suggested, or does it also imply that Jesus Christ is the first in time order to be born from the dead as a metaphor for the resurrection? The Bible tells us of others who were resurrected from the dead before Jesus Christ was, through the prayer of Elijah, for example, a widow's dead child was restored to life, as you can read about in 1 Kings 17. Later, a dead man revived, having been cast into the sepulcher of Elisha, which was probably a cave, and the dead man's body touched the bones of Elisha, and he was uh, restored to life. And you can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 13. Jesus himself during his earthly sojourn had resurrected his friend Lazarus who had died. And also we read about others that Jesus resurrected from the dead during his ministry. And there are a number of scriptures, uh, for example, in Matthew 9, Luke chapter 7 and, and uh, Luke uh, 8 and in John 11 are um, examples of uh, scriptures that tell us about people who were re resurrected by Jesus Christ during his ministry. So why is Jesus Christ then called firstborn from the dead? And what significance does that have? The Greek word translated firstborn in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5 and in Colossians 1 and verse 18 is prototakos. Prototakos, this word is a compound of, the, of a word derived from protos, or protos, I should say, which means first, and tikto, which means to bring forth, or to bear, or to produce. The word is used several places in the New Testament, including in the account of Jesus Christ's birth by the Virgin Mary. Luke chapter 2 and verse 7. Scripture says of Jesus' birth to Mary in that verse, Luke 2 and verse 7, she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And commenting on the use of the word firstborn, in Luke 2 and verse 7, the Greek grammarian A.T. Robertson writes, quote, the expression naturally means that she afterwards had other children. And we read of brothers and sisters of Jesus. That's from Word Pictures in the New Testament by A.T. Robertson. Matthew names four brothers of Jesus and mentions sisters as well. Matthew 13, beginning verse 54, Matthew 13, 
verse 54, when he had come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? And is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. So we see that Jesus was the firstborn son of Mary, but he also had brothers and sisters who came along later. The equivalent Hebrew word for firstborn is bakor, which along with cognate words with similar related meanings occurs extensively in the Old Testament. There are a few instances in the Old Testament where firstborn is used in a purely figurative sense of that which is supreme or preeminent over its kind, but in the vast majority of cases, it is used of that which is literally the first in time order to be born of a parent, especially the firstborn of a father. Scripture reveals that God from the beginning had a particular regard for that which was first to be born or produced and claimed it as his own in a, in a special way. In Exodus 13 and verse 2, Exodus 13 and verse 2, we read, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. Abel's offering was pleasing and acceptable to God in part because it included the firstborn of his flock, as we read in Genesis chapter 4, Genesis 4, beginning verse 3. In the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Under the culture and legal system of the Old Testament, firstborn sons were accorded certain rights, privileges, and responsibilities solely by virtue of having been born first. Among these was a double portion of the inheritance divided among the father's sons. In Deuteronomy 21, verse 15, Deuteronomy 21 and verse 15, we read, if a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved, and if the firstborn son is of her who is unloved, and it, then it shall be on the day he bequests his possessions to his sons that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. The right of the firstborn is his. So we see that there was there were certain rights inherent in being the firstborn, and among them was a double portion of the inheritance. It was not intended from the beginning by the way, that a man have two wives. But as with divorce, 
polygamy was tolerated under the old covenant system due to the hardness of human hearts. Among the patriarchs, the birth of the firstborn included chieftainship or rule over the brothers and the entire family. In other words, after the death of the father, the firstborn took over the role as the head of the family, the extended family. Esau was the firstborn of Isaac, and Esau sold his birthright to Jacob, his brother. Through guile, Jacob also received the blessing that normally accompanied the firstborn status. In giving the blessing of the firstborn son to Jacob, his father Isaac said to Jacob, in Genesis 27, verse 29, Genesis 27, verse 29, let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you, be master over your brethren, and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who, blessed, who bless you. So in other words, he was telling Jacob that he was to become the head of the family. In and, and the blessing in this case also accompanied title to the blessing of promise passed down from Abraham, which included physical inheritance for their descendants of the choice parts of the earth and the spiritual blessing of fellowship with God in a covenant relationship. The covenant God had made with Abraham and has passed down to his sons and heirs. One of the places in which the covenant with Abraham is described is Genesis 17, beginning with verse 1. Genesis 17 and verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, As for me, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come before you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations. For an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, the land, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Isaac, who was the grandson of Abraham, confirmed the blessing that accompanied firstborn status, excuse me, Isaac was the son of, uh, of, of Abraham. And he, he uh, confirmed the blessing that accompanied firstborn status that it had become Jacob's, who was his son, this grandson of, of Abraham. And so we read in Genesis 28, beginning with verse one, Genesis 28, verse 1, then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. Jacob was the son of Isaac and charged him and said to him, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan 
Arise and go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So that blessing was passed on from Abraham to Isaac and then to Jacob, whose name was also Israel. And we read in Psalm 105, beginning at verse 8, Psalm 105, verse 8, that that covenant was passed down from Abraham to his heirs and their descendants, as it mentions there, beginning with verse 8 of Psalm 105, he, that is God, remembers his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham at his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. So this was to be a covenant which was in a sense everlasting. The tribes of Israel eventually became the inheritors of that covenant with its blessings as we read further in Psalm 105 beginning verse 42. Psalm 105, verse 42, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant, he brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. He gave them the lands of the Gentiles and they inherited the labor of the nations that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. That they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. The land God promised to Abraham's descendants eventually far exceeded the confines of the land of Canaan. God had promised Jacob or Israel, as we read in Genesis 28, verse 14. Genesis 28, verse 14, God said to, to Israel or Jacob, also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread out or spread abroad to the west, and the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Paul states that this promise of inheritance eventually extends to all the world. He said in Romans 4, verse 13, Romans 4, verse 13, for the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So he speaks of, of the promise that Abraham or his descendants would be heir of the world. Now, during the, the period of the kings, it was customary for the firstborn son of the king to succeed his father as king. Though the custom was not always honored, we read in Second Chronicles chapter 21, beginning verse 1, Second Chronicles 21 and verse 1 about Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and says Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers, or in other words, he died and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. He had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, and then it names the brothers, several of them. 
and says all these were sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. And actually he was king of Judah, but uh, it says here, the king of Israel. And their father gave them great gifts of silver and gold and precious things with fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. So notice there were a number of brothers, but the, the inheritance or, or the throne, the succession went to the firstborn son, in that case, Jehoram. Under the law of the old covenant, the right of the firstborn was to belong to him who was born first. It is clear from scriptural example, however, that that right could be transferred to another for cause. While the descendants of all of Israel's sons were to share in his blessings in the latter days, the greater part of the physical inheritance went to Joseph and his sons. Now, Joseph was born later than Reuben, Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob's sons. Joseph, however, was the firstborn to the wife of Israel or Jacob, Rachel. He had two wives and two concubines by whom he bore children, the 12 tribes of Israel. But Reuben was the first actual firstborn Joseph was the firstborn to his wife, Rachel. But in terms of the inheritance of physical blessings, Joseph had replaced Reuben as, as the firstborn. Joseph, not Reuben, was regarded as the firstborn with regard to the physical blessings. On the other hand, the scepter, which is a symbol of royal authority, was given to Judah. The reason that Reuben lost his right to the firstborn status was because he forfeited it by committing adultery with Jacob's concubine. We read about this in Genesis 49, beginning verse 1. Genesis 49 to verse 1, Jacob called his sons and said, gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear you sons of Jacob and listen to Israel your father so this is a prophecy this chapter is a prophecy of what was to become of the descendants of the tribes of Israel in the last days in, a, in other words in the days just preceding the end of this age and he said listen to Israel, your father, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel, for you shall not have preeminence. As it is in the English Standard Version and some other translations. And then it goes on to say, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So the blessing of Jacob or Israel on Joseph's sons was passed on to his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. 
And that is recorded in Genesis 48 as follows, beginning verse 14, Genesis 48 and verse 14. Then Israel, that is Jacob or Israel, stretch out, stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has led me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, let my name be named upon them in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, in this case, the descendants of Ephraim, the younger son of Joseph, were to become greater than that of Manasseh, Joseph's firstborn. It goes on in Genesis 28 and verse 14. It says, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, so he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not so my father, for this one is the firstborn, put your hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know my son, I know he shall also become a people and he also shall be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude or a family, as it could be translated, and is translated in some versions, he shall become a multitude or a family of nations, or you might say a commonwealth of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, but by you Israel will bless, saying, may God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh, and thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. And Ephraim and Manasseh although they were both sons of Joseph, became independent tribes as the land of Israel, the land of Canaan was settled by the Israelites and they had a separate identity, even though they were both of the, both the sons of uh, Joseph, they were in a sense separate tribes. Now, additional specific blessings on the descendants of Joseph, especially to be fulfilled in the last days or near the end of the present age, are recorded in chapter 49 of Genesis. And we read in Genesis 49, beginning verse 22, the prophecy for the descendants of Joseph in the latter days. And this would uh, apply in a general sense to both uh, the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, and it says there, beginning verse 22 of Genesis 49, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. His branches run over the wall, and that indicates a people spreading out, colonizing, which the British and American peoples did, beginning in in the last uh, two or 300 years, they began to spread out and eventually spread out to many parts of the world. It goes on to say the archers have bitterly grieved him. In other words, his enemies 
shot at him and hated him, but his bow remained in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the God of your father who will help you. Excuse me, by the hands of the mighty God, the God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, shepherd of Israel by the God of your father who will help you and by the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and the womb, the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. And they shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. Now in Green's literal translation, verse 26 of this chapter is rendered as follows. The blessings of your father are above the blessings of my offspring to the limit of everlasting hills. May they be for the head of Joseph and for the crown of the leader of his brothers. So Joseph became the leading tribe, the, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Actually, Ephraim was, became the leading tribe, especially among the 10 tribes to the north in the northern nation of Israel after the nation was divided following Solomon's reign. But in modern times, these blessings have been fulfilled. And Great Britain and her Commonwealth nations and the United States of America, which were was settled primarily in the early days by Anglo-Saxon peoples from the British Isles and parts of Europe became the leading nations on earth in many respects. Leading nations in terms of cultural influence, in terms of military strength and power. Britain became the greatest colonizing nation of all time and her empire became the greatest empire ever in world history. And she controlled the little, literally controlled, ruled the, the oceans of the world for more than a century. The United States later became a great nation in its own right and the richest nation in the world. And those blessings now though are beginning to be removed from us because of our rebellion and disobedience. But those blessings came through the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to the sons of Joseph. And not because of any righteousness on our part, that is the part of the British and American peoples, but because God promised those blessings to Abraham and his descendants because Abraham was faithful and obedient to God. Now the scepter, which as I said, represents the office of king or the ruler was given to Judah in Genesis 49 and verse 10. Genesis 49 and verse 10, it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the lawmaker from between his feet until Shiloh, which is a reference to the Messiah come and the obedience of the peoples to him. In First Chronicles chapter 5, beginning verse 1, we read more about this. First Chronicles 5, 1, it says, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, 
he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright, yet Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came a ruler, or the chief ruler, as it says in some translations, although the birthright was Joseph's. So the birthright, the physical blessings, in that sense, were given to the descendants of Joseph primarily, or chiefly, and the chief ruler came from the tribe of Judah. Judah was the last of the four sons of Jacob to be born to his wife Leah. Now Reuben, as we've seen, was disqualified, and he was the firstborn of Leah, and the two next in order to be born to Leah were Simeon and Levi. Now these two had murdered Shechem, who had sought atonement for fornicating with Jacob's daughter, Dinah, as recounted in Genesis chapter 34. He and the daughter of Jacob, Dinah, had entered into a consensual premarital relationship, and Shechem repented and sought to make atonement for that sin, and before he was able to be reconciled, he was murdered by Simeon and Levi. And because of their crime, the descendants of Simeon and Levi were to be scattered among the other Israelite peoples in the latter days, as we read in Genesis 49, verses 5 through 7. So the kings of Israel would come primarily through the descendants of Judah as would ultimately the Messiah. Eventually, David, although he was not the firstborn among his father's sons, was chosen by God to become the king of Israel. And even though, as I said, he was not the firstborn, he became one regarded by God as a firstborn son. Speaking of David, it says in Psalm 89, beginning with verse 24, Psalm 89 and verse 24. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and mine, and in my name his horn shall be exalted. Also I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This is a prophecy pertaining to David. And the Kyle and Delich commentary remarks as follows. What is promised in Psalm 89 verse 26 is a worldwide dominion. What is promised in Psalm 89 verse 26 is a worldwide dominion. Now, largely unknown to most people is the fact that David's kingdom in ancient times was worldwide in its scope and influence, and even more so under his son Solomon. And there is a great deal of evidence for that, a source that goes into considerable detail regarding the history of Israel before and after the Assyrian captivity 
is a book called The Lost Ten Tribes of Israel found by Stephen M. Collins and particularly in chapters one and two of that book are details concerning the kingdom of Israel under David and Solomon and its influence not only in the Middle East but throughout the world. What we read of in Psalm 89 concerning David was not complete, however, in David, nor even in his son Solomon. In Jesus Christ, a descendant of David, this promise of worldwide dominion and other promises have been or will be fulfilled to the utmost. These promises yet await their ultimate and final fulfillment, and they will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in his people, Israel, not only physical Israel, but spiritual Israel in the future. Jesus Christ, after a ministry of three and a half years, being about 33 years old, was crucified and died an agonizing death. But women disciples of his came looking to anoint his body after he had been dead and buried for three days and three nights. As, he, as we read in Matthew 12, verse 39, Matthew 12, verses 39 and 40, Jesus uh, said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This was speaking of his burial. And the morning after the period of three days and three nights of being in the heart of the earth in a cave where he had been buried, the women arrived at the tomb where he had been laid. And we read in Mark 16, beginning verse one, Mark 16 and verse one, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, the mother of James and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen and they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw the stone had been rolled away for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, but he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now, for a detailed explanation concerning the sequence of events, Related to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you can refer to our booklet, When is the Biblical Passover, which explains this in some detail. And that book, When is the Biblical Passover, is available from our website as a PDF file that you can download, or you can also request a print copy, which we can send to you. But it explains the sequence of events which most people have not understood 
because of false teachings concerning it. After Jesus' resurrection, Jesus had remained for 40 days before he ascended into heaven. In Acts 1 and chapter, uh, excuse me, Acts 1 and verse 1, Luke writes, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the uh, pertaining to the kingdom of God. Luke had written about these things in his gospel account. And it tells us that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. And he was seen by many people after he was resurrected as he stayed for 40 days before he ascended into heaven. Now, Peter proclaimed on the day of Pentecost following Jesus' death and resurrection in Acts chapter 2, as it's recorded in verse 25, Acts 2, verse 25, or beginning in verse 25, Peter said, for David says concerning him, that is Jesus Christ, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is my right hand, he, or he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you show your holy, uh, uh, allow your holy one to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your pre presence. Men and brethren, Peter said, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him of the fruit of his body, in other words, a descendant, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, his soul, in this case, speaking of his body, which is one of the ways in which the term is defined in scripture nor did his, did his flesh see corruption hades is simply a term for the grave nor did his flesh see corruption in other words uh, he was not in the grave long enough for his body to significantly decay and it goes on to say peter went on to say this jesus god has raised up of which we're all witnesses Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear, for David did not ascend into the heavens. Notice David did not ascend into the heavens. David did not go to heaven. And he's not in heaven now. The Bible clearly tells us David did not ascend into the heavens. But he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God 
has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now Jesus did ascend into heaven after his resurrection. He was dead. He was buried for three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then he was resurrected again to life and not just physical life, but to eternal life. And then after 40 days and 40 nights, he ascended to heaven to be with the father sitting at the right hand of the father. Now, no doubt the news of the empty tomb where Jesus had been laid was well known in Jerusalem by the time Peter spoke to this crowd in the day of Pentecost. And he had been seen alive, not only by the apostles and other of his disciples, but he had been, been seen by more than 500 witnesses after he had been publicly executed by being whipped to near the point of death with a scourge, which is a whip consisting of a handle with leather strips attached with jagged pieces of bone or metal tied to the ends of the strips. And as with each blow of the scourge, chunks of flesh would be ripped from the flesh of the victim. And so by the time one had received 40 lashes as Jesus did, his body would be shredded. His, his bones would be exposed. And then Jesus was nailed to a cross. Finally, he had a Roman spear thrust into his side. As we read in John 19, verse 34. And there are more details about the punishment Jesus endured again in our book when is the biblical Passover now Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 beginning verse 8 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 8 moreover brethren I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you which I also you received and in which you stand by which you all are also saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he, that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, that he was seen by Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter. Then by the twelve, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep or they've died, which is the way that death is sometimes referred to in scripture. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time because Jesus appeared to Paul sometime after his death and resurrection. But he had been seen by many people, hundreds of people, after he had died and been resurrected. And also, as I mentioned, the tomb where he had been buried was, was uh, accessible 
to those who wanted to see that there was no one there. Paul, who had previously persecuted Christians, became himself a disciple, a follower, and an apostle of Christ after Christ appeared to him in a vision and later personally taught him. Paul testified in Galatians chapter 1, beginning verse 11. Galatians 1, verse 11, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you before God, and do not, I do not lie. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia and was unknown by face to the churches of Judea which were in Christ, but they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. So Paul, the former persecutor, did not confer with any of the apostles who had known Jesus Christ until three years after his conversion. Yet he was soon a foremost teacher within the church and he was teaching the same doctrine that the other apostles were teaching the doctrine that he himself was taught by Jesus Christ. Paul continues in Galatians 2, beginning of verse 1. Galatians 2 and verse 1, after 14 years, I went again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Going on in verse six, he said, but from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. In other words, what he's saying is that the leaders in Jerusalem had no a doctrine that Paul himself had not taught. And it goes on to say, on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. Now, what that's referring to is that Paul had been appointed to be the lead apostle to the Gentiles in the ministry to the Gentiles. Peter, on the other hand, had been appointed as the lead apostle in 
taking the gospel message to the 12 tribes of Israel. So they each had their individual spheres of uh, responsibility. It goes on to say, when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, and James evidently was the chief leading apostle at the Jerusalem church, which was the headquarters church at that time. When James, Cephas, or Peter, and John, these were the leading apostles among, the, among those who were in Jerusalem, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, that is the tribes of Israel. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. So there was harmony in the teaching of Paul and the other apostles. His primary mission was, as I said, to the gospel of the gospel to the Gentiles, although he also preached to the Jews and others at times. But they asked that he remember the poor among the circumcised as there were, was poverty among the followers of Jesus in Judea at that time due largely to persecution because they'd been driven from their homes had, had their possessions taken from them. And so they were in uh, dire straits, many of them. And Paul took pains on at least a couple of occasions to send to the G Judean Christians relief. Paul, in presenting a defense before the Roman authorities regarding charges brought to him by Jewish leaders, said in Acts 26, beginning in verse 19, Acts 26 and verse 19, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those at Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, in the Jameson Fawcett and Brown commentary on verse 23, it says, quote, the construction of this sentence implies that in regard to the question whether the Messiah is suffering one and whether rising first from the dead, he should show light to the Jewish people and the Gentiles. He had only said what the prophets and Moses said should come. So in what sense was Jesus the first to be resurrected? Now, even though the, the way this is phrased in the original actually does not say that Christ was the first to rise from the dead, but only that he would rise from the dead and give light to both Jews and Gentiles. It is nevertheless true as a number of scriptures make plain that Jesus was in fact the first 
to rise from the dead in a certain respect. Now we've already mentioned that others were resurrected before Jesus. Adam Clark comments on Acts 26 and verse 23 as follows, quote, that he should be the first that should rise from the dead, that is that he should be the first who should rise from the dead so as to die no more and to give in his own person the proof of the resurrection of the human body no more to remain under the empire of death. In no other sense can Jesus Christ be said to be the first that rose again from the dead for Elisha raised the son of the Shunammite, a dead man put into the sepulcher of the prophet Elisha was restored to life soon as he touched the prophet's bones, Christ himself had raised the widow's son of Nain, and he'd also raised Lazarus and several others. All these died again, but the human nature of our Lord was raised from the dead and can die no more. Thus he was the first who rose from again from the dead to return no more to the empire of death. The difference is, that the others who were resurrected to life were resurrected to only physical life. They died a natural death after living out a certain number of years, having been resurrected, having died once, been resurrected, they died again and they're still dead. Jesus Christ is firstborn from the dead, however, insofar as he is the first and so far the only person who has been resurrected from the dead to eternal life. Paul wrote to Timothy of Jesus Christ that he alone has immortality. That he, Jesus Christ, alone has immortality. Now, if Jesus Christ alone has immortality, that means no one else other than Jesus Christ, that is no human being who has been resurrected, no human being who has lived and died has immortality. Jesus Christ of all human beings alone has immortality. That's in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. Now, you can learn more about this subject from an article we've posted on our website, cogmessenger.org. The article is, What is Death? What is Death? And you can read more about what the Bible tells us about that subject in that article. Paul opened his epistle to the Romans as follows in Romans chapter one, beginning with verse one, Paul wrote that he is a bond servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle separated to the gospel of God, which he promised through his prophets and the Holy scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. 
So Jesus Christ is the son of God and the firstborn son of God in that he is the first to have been resurrected from the dead to become fully like God, an immortal spirit being in the image and likeness of God. And Jesus Christ is said to be in the likeness of God in, as we read in Hebrews chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Hebrews 1 and verse 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is, tells us that Jesus Christ was God prior to his human conception and birth. But he became a human being. Goes on to say, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he, uh, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And this is what God said audibly when Jesus Christ was born of the flesh. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, speaking of Jesus Christ, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain and they shall grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years shall not fail. But of which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool are not. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? Now more clear in verse six is the following. When God was about to send his firstborn son into the world, he said all of God's angels must worship him. That's from the God's word to the nation's translation. And so Jesus Christ is God, as he was referred to there as God, and he is to be worshipped. Angels are not to be worshipped, but God is. Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead to enter into eternal life, but he is the forerunner of many more. Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 29, for he whom he foreknew, he also predestined, or foreknows, it might be better translated, 
He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Notice that the destiny of those who are to be converted eventually, and this is a subject that we also written about in extensively in one or two of our articles explaining the meaning, but what it tells us is that the purpose for which human beings are created is to be conformed to the image of Christ, that is to become like Christ and to be born into the kingdom of God, the family of God as Jesus Christ has been after his physical death and then his resurrection. And this is explained in some detail in an article called, Are the Lost Predestined to Hell? Available on our website. Again, this scripture means that human beings exist for the purpose of becoming immortal like Christ, sharing the nature of God. And there will be countless others who will follow Christ into immortality in future resurrections. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits, or the Greek actually says the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection for the, from the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruit. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the son himself will be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. In other words, it's talking about the father will see that ultimately the entire creation is made subject to Jesus Christ. And there will be God the Father ruling over all, directly under him, Jesus Christ, the supreme ruler under God, the Father, will rule not only the entire universe, but all creation, including those who will have born been born into the family of God as children of God. And they will be sharing in the likeness of God, as we just read, that, that it is that we were created to be conformed to the image of Christ. 
in 1 John chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. 1 John 3 and verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know when he is revealed, we shall be like him. Or we shall see him as he is. Notice it says when Christ is revealed, that is when Christ returns to this earth, those who are to be in the first resurrection will be like him, will share him, his likeness, his nature. We read in Philippians 3, verse 20, 3, verse 20 of Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. So we will have glorious bodies, like the glorious body, not a, a mere physical body, but a glorified body, like that of Jesus Christ in the resurrection. Now, not only is Jesus Christ the first to be resurrected, as explained above, but Jesus Christ also has supreme authority or preeminence as the firstborn of God. We read in Colossians 1 and verse 13, and this was already hinted at in the scripture we read earlier, but in Colossians 1 and verse 13, it says, He has delivered, or it would be better translated, he delivers us from the power of darkness and conveyed or conveys would be a better translation, conveys us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Notice he is firstborn that he may have the preeminence or please the father that in him should all fullness dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ holds the status of the firstborn over all creation. And this implies that he has a status superseding that is superior to that of any created thing in revelation 1 and verse 5 revelation 1 and verse 5 we read from him jesus christ the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood although jesus christ has authority over the kings of the earth he is not yet exercising that authority to govern the earth fully as he will 
when he returns to the earth in power. Daniel saw a vision from God, which he wrote down in Daniel chapter 7, beginning with verse 13. Daniel 7 and verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Now Jesus Christ testified before his persecutors that he is the one who was spoken of in Daniel's vision. In Matthew 26, verse 63, Matthew 26, verse 63, it says, Jesus kept silent. This was as he was being tried before Pilate. And the high priest answered him and said to him, I put you under oath before the living God. Actually, this is when he was being interrogated by the Sanhedrin. I put you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, it is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the Olivet Prophecy, Jesus said in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 30, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Meanwhile, it's up to us to follow the admonition of Paul to Timothy who wrote to him in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, chapter 6, verse 11 of 1 Timothy. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Jesus Christ who witnesses or who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. <laughs>